Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Today, we're going to listen back to some of our favorite episodes from 2023. We'll hear about the impact of contentious political changes and powerful storms. We'll revisit conversations about the growth in Hispanic businesses, upheavals in education, the rise in extremism, and the history of baseball. Let's start with an episode from Our Changing State, our series and podcast from last summer where we explored how the state's population boom is affecting our lives. In a conversation about culture, I spoke with Sarah McNamara, an assistant professor of history at Texas A&M University, about how Florida is much more than its stereotypes. You'll also hear from William Gravely, a longtime St. Petersburg resident and business owner. Sarah, what about you? What do you think about when you think about Florida culture? When I think about Florida culture, I imagine the difference between what people imagine Florida to be and the reality of what it is. So I'm a historian and I think historically about these things. And I am struck frequently by how people think about the state, right? We imagine it in many ways as the South's playground, right? It's a place where you go to the beach. It's a place where you can go have natural vacations, right? The natural component of what Florida is, it becomes this tourist destination, right? A place where you can go to Disney World. But the way that I write about Florida is very much asking us to ground ourselves in the history of the state Mm -hmm. and what that means about how the state is constructed. So Florida in and of itself, it's important to remember that it is a southern state. It was a state that was built by the labor of enslaved people. It did have a long history of Jim Crow um, established racial division. And upon those things, it creates an environment where Florida's incredibly diverse population has to figure out where it fits within this. Florida very often, right, the Florida that is sold is a Florida that doesn't involve those complications. But we imagine Florida as just like tropical paradise, but the reality is that it's much more complex. Mm. So when we look at things that are happening today, especially in the political landscape or within the cultural landscape, what we're really seeing is the Florida that has long existed that is in conflict with the Florida that people imagine. Thinking about Florida in that sense of complexity is something that is there and is here, and imagining that is important. Mm-hmm. William, what's your take on Florida culture? What do, you, what do you think about when you think about Florida culture? How is that changing, as far as you can tell? Florida culture is very um, diverse in terms of culture, social economic status, all of the things that um, Dr. Mac- McNamara just uh, just alluded to uh, are very, very true. Uh, and there's still a big social economic divide, and I'm witnessing it uh, for myself in St. Petersburg in terms of the um, gentrification of our neighborhoods. All of the poor and homeless people have been pushed out of downtown because of all the high-rises. There's been little or no uh, infrastructure or any kind to any kind of thing to help those who are struggling. People are being totally priced out of anywhere to live. Now, on the other side, 
I think that Florida is a is a wonderful, diverse society that has much to offer um, anyone who comes. But it is it's much harder for people who are starting from the bottom um, to ever get off the bottom because mm-hmm. there's there's really there's there's no help for them. That was St. Petersburg resident and business owner William Gravely and Texas A&M University professor Sarah McNamara talking about Florida's culture in the Our Changing State series. Sarasota County has always been known for its conservative politics, but in recent years the area has become more socially conservative and has attracted some from the extreme right of the Republican Party, such as Michael Flynn, a national security advisor and vocal advocate for former President Trump. In January, I spoke via Zoom with Washington Post reporter Tim Craig, who wrote about Flynn and Victor Mellor, owner of a retreat center in Venice. Called The Hollow, it's billed as a freedom-loving American value sanctuary. What do you think it is that makes Sarasota in particular and that part of uh, Florida a focal point for conservatives like General Michael Flynn and and you know the likes of Victor Mellor who set up this place where they can gather and and, and talk to each other? Well, Sarasota has always been a sort of Republican stronghold. I mean, Sarasota was a Republican stronghold, even when most of the rest of Florida was still Democratic, relating to the era of post-Civil War political era in the United States. But it was always it was sort of a moderate conservatism. There was like a lot of business people would go and retire in Sarasota. So it had that sort of moderate, you know, economically conservative-based philosophy. Um, in recent years, though, it has sort of taken on a tinge of more more social conservatism and more sort of, it has evolved the same way as the Republican Party nationally has evolved, become more conservative. And I think it's sort of in the last couple of years, especially with under Governor DeSantis, Florida as a whole has become more conservative. It is attracting more conservative people from around the country who are purposely deciding to um, retire here. General Flynn, for instance, after he left Washington, D.C. in the Trump administration, he came to Sarasota. That's how he got here. And you're seeing that a number of people who some of them would describe as even being members of the alt-right um, have sort of made Sarasota region a hub. Beyond that, it is a big county. So you have the city of Sarasota remains a relatively uh, moderate slash left-leaning oasis. But the rest of the county is very rural. And it's like the rest of the country, those parts of the Rural areas have grown more conservative during the Trump era, and there's really no sign that that's sort of stopping. And if anything, um, under Governor DeSantis, you know, these trends are accelerating. So the Hollows location in Florida and the Hollows location in Sarasota is kind of a broader sort of metaphor for what's happening in the entire state of Florida, where Florida in itself is sort of becoming more of a harbinger for conservative and conservative views. On your visit, your reporting visit to the Hollow, you talked to some of the folks who were just there, you know, families who'd, who'd come to, to to visit the place. What did they tell you? Like, what was the impression you got from them? What was the draw of the Hollow? One day I was there, it was like a lot of homeschool mothers were there with their children. And they said that they get comfort over talking to other mothers and other families who have their same values. I mean, I think it's a broader reflection of what's going on around the country nationally. It does seem to be that people are increasingly looking out for audiences or support networks that reinforce their existing views versus, you know, challenge their views. So I, th- I think that they, they sort of see a community where they can go in there and everyone sort of agrees with them. They don't have to worry about talking about that they like Donald Trump. Some parts of the country, you know, people don't want to talk politics, so they don't know what the other per- person believes. So I think it's sort of, it's a reflection of uh, Americans increasingly wanting settings that reinforce their political beliefs 
instead of sort of challenge them or force them to tiptoe around that. And I think more broadly, it's like a sense of community. That was Tim Craig of The Washington Post talking about the rise in far-right conservative politics in the greater Tampa Bay region. We also talked on Florida Matters about the erosion of trust in the media. According to a recent Gallup poll, nearly one out of four Americans say they have no trust in the news media at all. It's not just an existential crisis for newsrooms. As trust in the media declines, researchers say it drops for science, higher education and government as well. In November, Florida Matters visited the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg to speak with Alex Mahadevan, director of MediaWise at Pointer, and Joy Mayer, the founder and director of Trusting News. Mayer began by explaining how people discern what is and is not credible. Everybody trusts somebody, right? If you think about the, your kind of diet of trust, if you think about where you spend your trust, everybody trusts somebody. So people will trust their media. People trust the sources that they turn to regularly. They don't trust the media. So as it gets easier to find information from a specific point of view, representing a specific idea, targeting a specific demographic, people glom onto that and trust that and have less and less trust in anything that doesn't sound like that. When you think about the last six or seven years, are there some events that stick out for you that may account for this rapid erosion of trust in media? Well, absolutely, the political climate of the country makes a big difference. It's not a new idea or a an idea that began with President Trump to call journalists the enemy of the people, but definitely uh, that idea has gained a lot of steam and it's become sort of a part of a partisan identity in some ways to not trust mainstream journalism. Mm-hmm. And there's also some pretty big gaps between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to media trust. And also, I wanted to ask you about the connection between trust in the media and how Americans view the government and their trust in those institutions. Do these things kind of go in tandem? They definitely do. I mean, trust in institutions is declining. Trust in science, trust in higher education, trust in government. We're becoming more and more skeptical. It's not just people who lean right who have lower trust in news. It's also independents. This is not a problem of like extreme political views. This is a a problem of um, people who fundamentally see the world differently and who don't see their own values and ideas reflected in journalism. Alex, what are some of the things that work against news organizations and the general public when they're trying to get an accurate picture of what's going on? Newsrooms are competing against multiple social media platforms and millions of posts billions of videos that are posted every day by influencers that unfortunately, you know, Gen Z, for example, trust more than a regular journalist. So you're going up against these larger forces and influx of information that is totally unregulated. There is no editor who's making sure a YouTube video is accurate. So an influencer can churn out 500 YouTube videos in, you know, a matter of a a month that will influence a lot of how people feel about the government, about institutions, and about journalists themselves. So newsrooms and journalists are up against social media right now. That's it. What other advice would you have for journalists or newsroom leaders or organizations who are grappling with a road of trust and trying to figure out long-term how to win it back? The first step to winning trust back is to understand mistrust. My number one wish for local newsrooms is that they would remain deeply curious about what is getting in the way of trust, that they would spend time asking people, the people they aim to serve in their community, questions like, what are we getting wrong? What are we missing? Do you see your own life and values reflected in the news? Tell me what you trust and why. Tell me where else you turn for information. Only by 
understanding that, can we make changes as newsrooms that will repair the relationship? And I think there are problems on both sides of this broken relationship. There are plenty of problems with the way people consume the news. Fundamentally, this problem is an existential crisis for journalism, for our ability to survive financially, and for our ability to fulfill our basic public service mission. So the onus on change needs to rest with the newsrooms. If you are losing the trust of your community, there should be no higher priority than investigating why and making changes as a result of what you hear. That was Joy Mayer with Trusting News and Alex Mahadevan, Director of MediaWise at the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg, talking about the erosion of trust in the media. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're revisiting some of our favorite shows from 2023. After the break, how hurricanes are further eroding already battered shorelines in the Tampa Bay region. We'll also hear about the growth in Hispanic businesses, educational upheaval at New College, and the rich history of baseball in St. Petersburg. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Let's continue listening back to some of our favorite episodes from the year. In August, storm surge from Hurricane Idalia left Pinellas County beaches badly eroded. Idalia's impact on the coast made an ongoing problem much worse. Pinellas County Public Works Director Kelly Hammer-Levy joined Florida Matters via Zoom to explain how a standoff over property rights is complicating beach restoration efforts. Not only did it damage the berm itself, that's the area that most people are familiar with. They walk on it. It's the flat area. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, just dunes were completely eliminated. Um, in Grill, some areas of Indian Rocks Beach, some areas of Clearwater. I mean, there are just areas where we have pre-Adalia photos of dunes, and now there's just nothing. I mean, there's nothing but roots that you can kind of reach down into the sand and pull up so you know there was a dune there, but there's not a grain of sand left. And re-nourishing those beaches with sand involved city and county government, also the federal government in the form of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So who's responsible for what in that mix? The county serves as what's called the local sponsor. Uh, the Army Corps, you know, doesn't want to work with city by city by city by city. That that would create a lot of discontinuity. And so the county serves as that single point of contact. But we still need a lot of collaboration and participation from our cities, especially when it comes to being able to utilize the public spaces for staging areas and working with the residents when we have easement needs and those types of issues. And currently, there's a bit of a standoff, right? Some residents aren't keen to provide easement, and that's creating a, a holdup in the, in the work that needs to be done. Yes, currently all three segments are on hold. Sand Key's been on hold for quite some time. We have about 220 easements out of the 461 that we need. Treasure Island, we really don't have a formal number yet as to how many properties we need. We know it's going to be a lot. And then on the Long Key segment, there are three easements that are needed on the north end of the project. And the south end of the project is all in city ownership. So that area is fine. But unfortunately, it can't move forward independent of everything else. So as public works director, do you find yourself having to kind of get out there and advocate for the work? Like are you 
becoming a cheerleader for trying to get this work done, explaining to landowners why those easements are necessary and why they need to give a little to get their beaches back? I do. You know, I was out last Thursday, I walked 10 miles (laughs) on the beach and I spoke with a number of residents. The individuals who did sign the easement said, I just don't understand. I signed the easement ahead of the 2018 project. I got sand. I've had no issues. It hasn't been a problem. Why won't they sign? You talk to the folks who won't sign. It's, you know, it's a variety of issues. They feel it's a taking. They're taking my property. It requires public access and use. I don't want people sitting on my seawall and they don't want it to be perpetual. You know, these projects are federally authorized for 50 years. And so they don't understand why is the Army Corps asking for a perpetual easement when the project isn't perpetual. Mm. So I try to share with residents the information that we've received from the Army Corps as to the importance of it, why they're asking for it, what their you know perspective is. At the same time, I'm trying to advocate for our citizens and our residents and our businesses with the Army Corps to try to see if there's a middle ground. Right now, we're we're really far apart and we, we need to come together. I know there's a solution, but it's going to take folks being willing to work together. That was Pinellas County Public Works Director Kelly Hammer-Levy talking about beach erosion in the aftermath of Hurricane Idalia. Florida's economy is booming and Hispanic-owned businesses are contributing to that growth. We wanted to find out what that means for the greater Tampa Bay region. So, in October, we visited the downtown St. Petersburg offices of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of Pinellas County. There, we spoke with entrepreneur Paula Lacey and Eli Gonzalez, the Chamber's president. Lacey began by talking about the challenges of moving her marketing and branding business from Virginia to a new state. Well, I think doing business anywhere really is about community. And so there's an ease of... of community resources here in Pinellas County, I think. It was harder, it took a lot longer for me in Virginia to get established. And here, it's been eight months and I've already met some amazing people, great clients, great community collaborations. I worked on a short film already and we just, we've done so many things that would have taken a lot more years in, in Virginia. And so it's been a lot of fun. And that is part of what I think makes it different. And the fact that you can do anything all year round, you don't have the issues of snow and long commutes and things like that. Being part of the chamber has made it easier as far as is knowing that there's somebody there that I can talk to and just say like, hey, this is really tough. How did you get through this? And know that there's very experienced people that can give me a word of encouragement and yeah, we can get through it together. Any other advice you'd give to people either thinking about starting up a brand new business or relocating to this part of the world? Don't be shy. Get in touch with the chamber right away. Get in touch with the city organizations like the Greenhouse. Everything that you can get plugged into, go to all the events. Just just get yourself out there. There's a lot of work from home businesses nowadays that don't really get out into the community and they really struggle. Because you can build a, a business online, but there's really nothing like having a community a local community that will support you so get out there make connections don't be shy have very very clear what your message is who you are and what you stand for so that you can communicate that with people and they can promote it for you i want to ask too about those different chambers because you mentioned the hispanic chamber of commerce of tampa bay and you know my understanding is that there's three in the kind of greater tampa bay region right so do you compete or collaborate and why the need for so many 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So the other chamber is the Latin chamber of Tampa. And the, the presidents of the three chambers, we're actually very good friends. And we, we don't compete. We do kind of cross each other's bounds because the one in Tampa has been around for 42 years and they already have members here in Pinellas County. We cross promote, even though we come from different parts of Latin America or Caribbean, what have you. The beautiful thing of the people here that have these positions, these titles, we just want the Hispanic business community to thrive. And if it's with our chamber, uh, we'll do what we can. But if it's with another chamber, if another chamber suits them best, then we recommend them to go over there. So I think it starts the foundation that the three of us knew each other before we started becoming uh, presidents of chambers. And our friendship has really crossed the lines and, and permeated into the way that our chambers connect. So we don't compete. You know, we lift each other up. Next year, we're going to do some cross uh, promotions and events together. So it, it's a beautiful thing, and I just wish that more Latinos, in period, would see us of so many different ethnicities and different regions just saying, hey, let's get together for the greater good of our people. That was Eli Gonzalez and Paula Lacey with the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of Pinellas County. The Republican-led legislature and Governor Ron DeSantis made sweeping changes to both public K-12 schools and state universities in 2023. Targets included the teaching of race, gender and sexual orientation and the appropriateness of books available in schools. At the start of the year, the governor appointed six new members to the New College of Florida Board of Trustees. That board quickly removed New College's president and proposed Florida's former education commissioner as a replacement. Richard Corcoran was confirmed as president in November, nine months after taking the role as interim president. In that time, he's eliminated the college's Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, created athletic teams, and set a new accountability plan with lowered performance expectations. In February, WUSF reporter Kathy Carter joined Florida Matters to talk about how Corcoran was chosen to lead the small liberal arts college in Sarasota. Well, Richard Corcoran, who is a Republican, he served as the Speaker of the House in Florida. He was also the state's education commissioner under Ron DeSantis. His name actually uh, came up at the last board meeting of the new college board from Matthew Spaulding, who's a dean at Hillsdale College, which is the small private Christian school in Michigan that Governor Ron DeSantis uh, has said he wants to model new college on. Now, this is controversial because this news of Richard Corcoran being named interim president came up before the board meeting. It was leaked, and at the time, students from New College were having a rally. And Patricia Oker, the president at the time at New College, was at this board meeting. It was very shocking to people uh, in the audience. And there's also some controversy, is there not, Kathy, over... The salary of Mr. Corcoran, he's being paid, I think, double or something like that, what um, Patricia Oka was being paid to, to lead the college. Well, the contract as it stands right now would be uh, Richard Corcoran would be receiving an annual salary of $699,000. That's pretty much averages out to about $1,000 per student because New College has a student enrollment of 700 people. In addition to that nearly $700,000, Richard Corcoran uh, has been offered $84,000 a year for a housing allowance and $12,000 a year for automobile allowance. So quite a lot of changes coming pretty rapidly to New College. What have board members of New College said about what they want to do with the college? What is the plan to 
transform this place. Well, during his inauguration speech, Governor Ron DeSantis said that the universities here in Florida and the state colleges support a woke ideology, which is kind of a catch-all term for what conservatives consider progressive kinds uh, of ideology. So the the board that he put together for New College, six conservative members. We do have uh, Matthew Spaulding, as I spoke of before, who is the dean of Hillsdale College. We also have a education activist, Christopher Rufo, who was on stage with Governor Ron DeSantis last year when Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education Law. Christopher Rufo is very active on Twitter, and in just the past couple of weeks, he has released what he calls reports on the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at uh, Florida State, at USF, at UCF, saying that they're all radical and out of control. That was WUSF's Kathy Carter speaking with Florida Matters in February. 2023 was a pivotal year for baseball in Tampa Bay, with a crucial decision to rebuild Tropicana Field and keep the Rays in St. Petersburg. And baseball has a rich history here. For the past 25 years, the region has had its own major league team, the Tampa Bay Rays, but for many decades before that, the area played host to many of the biggest teams for spring training. In July, on the eve of the All-Star Game, we talked with Rick Vaughan, author of 100 Years of Baseball on St. Petersburg's Waterfront, How the Game Helped Shape a City. The former communications executive for the Rays explained how spring training helped make St. Pete a popular tourist destination. Uh, Let's step back in time a little bit before the arrival of the Rays. Now, you write about the history of baseball in the Tampa Bay region and St. Pete specifically in your book. But what was that baseball scene like here before 1998? You know, from the very beginning, once you go back, I mean, you could go back as far as 1914 when the Browns came here. Al Lang, who was the two-time mayor and came down from Pittsburgh, big baseball fan, huge St. Pete fan, and he melded the two together, saw the opportunity to take tourism, put it on the back of baseball, which is what he did. And he just didn't get two. We had two teams here, which was very unusual at that time, but they just weren't any two teams. For the first 13 years, from 1922 to 36, it was the the Braves and the Yankees. So you had two of the top three media markets here every year for a quarter of the year, all reporting about what was going on down here and the virtues of the area. And I, I read where at some point the sports editors up in the Northeast, they stopped putting Florida after St. Pete. They didn't need to. Everybody knew where St. Pete was on their dateline. So it's it's unbelievable the impact I think that having and then when the Yankees came in here in, in 1925 you know the Braves had come in in 22 Yankees in 25 and then even after the Braves left the Cardinals came in so you had the two most successful teams in Major League Baseball at that time in terms of World Series wins and it's still true today so you had the two most successful teams basically playing here from 1937 until the Yankees left in 19 after 1961 this was the center of spring training for like six decades, because even after the Yankees left, the Mets came in. Mm -hmm. So you still had that New York media here, uh, and you had the Cardinals. And so there was always, this was the center of the world for spring training for many, many years. And a lot of that, you know, obviously helped the the tourism business. They, you know, they had a a built-in audience, but it really helped grow. It wasn't the only thing that brought people here, obviously the water and the sunshine, but Mm -hmm. baseball really was such an, and that's why I wrote about it, was that it was so important to developing what the city became. That was Rick Vaughan, former communications executive for the Tampa Bay Rays. 
You can hear the full conversation about baseball, which also features longtime Tampa Bay sports writer Joey Johnston and Alan Rittner, editorial producer with MLB Advanced Media LP, by subscribing to the Florida Matters podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There, you'll also hear the complete versions of all the excerpts we've been listening to on this episode. That's Florida Matters for this week. Our producer is Steve Newborn, production assistance from Mary Shedden. Tune in next week. We'll revisit conversations with newsmakers from 2023. I'm Matthew Petty. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.